The History of Alternative Podcast. A historic look back at everything alternative. Uh, The 1990s gave the world so much. The World Wide Web, the Hubble Space Telescope, slap bracelets, grunge, six NBA championships for the Bulls, Harry Potter, a clone sheep, the Heaven's Gate cult. It also was what a lot of people think to be the greatest decade for music ever. It's me, James. I am a lot of people. This is the History of Alternative Podcast. I'm James Van Ostel, and that is Mall Santa John Manley. Ho, 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 James. I'm going to shove some Wintrust up your chimney, or you can, you know, shove it up there yourself. Just go to Wintrust.com. This is the best of the 90s. We're going to roll through our 10 favorite albums from the decade. First, we should explain what we mean. Yeah, because this is going to get a little bit deep, right? Like, these are our favorite albums from the 90s. This isn't like the definitive rock critic list or meant to be like an academic presentation. This is just two guys who lived through the best musical decade ever (laughs) ripping off their 10 favorite albums of the era, right? That's just it. People love to argue about lists or challenge lists. I can't believe you didn't include blank or you should have done blank. No, we shouldn't have. This is just the stuff we like the most. This is our list. Your list will be totally different from what we come up with. We're just sharing our favorites. We're not going to try to impress you with musical knowledge. I'm not going to sit here and tell you why you should care about Slint or why OK Computer was such a seminal release. None of that matters. We're just two guys who live through it talking about what they love. You want to start with your list? I'm ready to start. I can get through this. Let's go through the top 10. What kind of like, what do you think? Should we kind of rapid fire 10 through 6 and then we'll get real heavy into the 5 through 1? Does that work for you? It works for me, especially because some of my 10 through 6s are dubious, and you're going to want to stop there, but I like the idea of blowing through them without much chatter. Oh, if, 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 there's, a, if there's a need to stop, we're going to stop, my friend, and right. perhaps maybe I will start the list with something that does need to be stopped on. Uh, my number 10 album on the top 10 of the 90s would be Hum, You'd Prefer an Astronaut. I, I can't say I didn't see this one coming. Uh, you know, what's funny is it's like, it, that's a record, like, like, I remember as a kid trying for weeks to record stars off of WKQX. And they only played it at night. And some asshole DJ would always talk over the intro. Uh, so when I finally got it recorded onto my boombox tape, I felt like I had just won, like, Mike Tyson's punch out or, like, the, <laughs> the jet ski uh, level of battle toads. Fun fact is I am now that asshole DJ talking over intros. So it's all come full circle at this point. But I had yeah. to put that song on there. The Hunter is now the Hunted. Exactly. And, you know, shout outs to Champagne, Illinois. My number 10 favorite album from the 1990s, John? Yeah. Rob Zombie, Hellbilly Deluxe. I should have known this was going to be on this list. Really? You like Rob Zombie, the musician, more than Rob Zombie, the horror director? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Rob, Rob Zombie's done one good movie. But musically, this one, I keep playing it. And to me, it gets better and better with age. And I love, I love the theatrical shtick. I love the horror shtick. I love what he does sonically. I, this is one of my favorites. I legitimately still play it. And that was one of my criteria. It's, again, not trying to impress anybody. What am I still listening to in 2020 slash 2021? What albums are still connecting with me? This is one of them. Outstanding. My number nine uh, was one that... I feel could have been anywhere from nine to about two, depending on how you wanted to go with it. But I went with Oasis. What's the story? Morning glory is the oh, gateway drug to, you know, Brit pop. So 
Uh, I do have Britpop coming up on my list. Did so, you go the opposite side of, did you, did you pick the Stones versus the Beatles? Is that what's about to happen? Here? I, I absolutely <laughs> went with the Stones and we'll, we'll get to that. My number nine, Let Love In by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Despair and Deception, Love's Ugly Little Twins, came in knocking on my door, I let them in. I'm sensing a trend with your selections here. My number eight, <laughs> <laughs> um, I cheated here a little bit because I couldn't pick between the two. I took Radiohead, The Benz, slash OK Computer, but I'm going to actually stick with The Benz um, because for me, that was the record that, for that, if I was to give one Radiohead record forever, it's it is the Benz. I don't think there is a perfect or a, a misplaced note on that album. I feel it is a perfect record, and that's an important thing to mention when you're considering records, start to finish. Does it hold up as an album? You may really love certain songs on an album. That doesn't mean it's a great album. Are 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 these albums stinker free? And that was one of my criteria. I like Can that. I listen I, I, from start to finish. Exactly. And, and th that album to me is like, I feel like there's pre-OK Computer and post-OK Computer and everyone kind of looks at that album as like the definitive Radiohead. And I'm not going to argue against that. But I feel like you can hear in OK Computer them like intentionally going away from pop constructs, I guess you would say, where, yeah. the, where the Benz is still very incredibly accessible, even though it's like, they're making sounds from computers. This is weird, you know? <laughs> well, there is no radio head on my list, but talk to me again when we do the aughts because they'll show up gotcha. on my list. Got and there won't be radio head in my aughts. So this could be a good, maybe that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> radio head, when did you fall off? <laughs> For me, number eight, the double CD at the time released, Nine Inch Nails, The Fragile. Ah, very good. That's Very an album I, I keep coming back to. I, I make an annual return to that album. And in all these months of working from home, living out of my home office, that is just a go-to as I, as I work. Just great in the background, great in the foreground. It works in all scenarios. Uh, I, I love that album to this day. Um, we will talk about Nine Inch Nails uh, again in a minute as I realize that I actually, my 10 through 6 is actually 11 through 6, so sorry. Um, <laughs> my number 7, uh, Dr. Dre's The Chronic. Now listen, I know that's an alternative. However, I refuse to go through a list of best albums of the 90s and not uh, give some shine to essentially the never mind of hip-hop. See, I, I was... I had some hip hop on on the borderline on the cusp. I was going to go with Fear of a Black Planet by Public Enemy. Nothing wrong with that either. For me it was The Chronic just because it's like I feel like that album is the blueprint for everything that happened before it and everything that's happened after it. Like that is a definitive pin in the timeline of hip hop slash rap music where like everything can go back to that. That's totally fair. Okay. Number seven for me, maybe a less obvious choice. I don't know. Uh, Dummy from Portishead. Oh, the, yeah, cool. The quintessential trip hop album. If you put it on today, it sounds just as striking, innovative, and cool as it did when it came out in the mid-90s, or 94, 95, I think. Uh, just Beth Gibbons' voice, such a cool record. I'm going to go into my number six, and this is I'm going to give you both. I'll go six and, oh, Crap, six part two. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with Weezer's Blue Album because for me, when, when grunge happened, you know, 
Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell were these rock gods and whatever. And then Weezer happened and there was this nerd making music and it was like, they were the first band that I felt like accessible to or that it was like, I saw them and I go, Hey, maybe I can actually start a band. I don't have to grow my hair out. I can just figure out a couple chords and go for it. Um, so I put Weezer there and then, uh, it's actually kind of fitting that I group these two together because, um, if Weezer was the, Hey, I can make music like this band, uh, this next band is the complete exact opposite. And I have nine inch nails, the downward spiral. Totally legit. I mean, I remember the first time I heard March of the Pigs. That song is, is, is just like a brawl on CD. Here's a, here's a sidetrack, but a good story. When I was, what, 16, got my first car. Of course, the first thing I did was put a gigantic stereo in it because that's what you did back then. Um, and one of the first times my mom drove in my car with me, um, I, <laughs> I had Downward Spiral in the, uh, the old uh, Sony disc, or disc changer in my car. And when she got in, I had not, I'd done the teenage thing where I didn't turn down the radio before I turned out the car. So as right. soon as it fired up, boom. I, I still do that. Yeah, of course. And um, March of the Pigs was the song that it just happened to be on. So my, you know, tiny little Italian mom jumps in the car and just gets hit with, I mean, full downward spiral, right? I mean, like just intense right in her face. And she's just like, okay. <laughs> I don't want to completely gloss over the blue album, which you mentioned. This is not a popular opinion. This is my opinion. I don't think Weezer has ever put out a good album. I think they've done a lot of good songs, but I don't think they've had one good start to finish album. I think Weezer's legacy is complicated. I think. Is it? Yeah, I do. I do. Because I think, I mean, they're still relevant today. And we can argue the merits of that for, for a while. I mean, I haven't really liked a lot of their stuff basically since, I don't know, the green record, I guess would probably be my last like all in on Weezer kind of thing. I think they're as good as Rivers Cuomo decides he wants them to be. And I feel like, I feel like fame messed him up pretty good. Oh, I agree with that. So uh, I don't know. Are you a Pinkerton apologist? One thousand percent. Okay. One thousand. I almost put Pinkerton instead of the blue album, but the blue album has my name is Jonas. So therefore it goes on the list because that is one of my favorite songs of all time. Now I will going back to you, you're talking about how these nerds were making music and how it spoke to you. I do appreciate the nerdiness of the band. There there's a song on that first album, on the blue album, uh in uh God. I can't the garage song. Uh, in the garage. In the garage. Yeah, yeah. I would say in the garage. Yeah, yeah. That is that is a totally nerd friendly classic. I love that song on that album, and I, I also enjoy Surf Wax America. See, the blue album is pretty good, James. We can we can come together. My number six is from what I will stand on record as saying is the greatest live band in the history of music. The Pro Jesus. Uh, no, no, no. Oh, please, please. We're going to fight. This is going to be good. The Jesus Lizard. <laughs> one of the best bands to ever come out of Chicago. Certainly one of the best bands to come out of Chicago during the 1990s. Just a fiery, feral, loud, angular band. The album Goat. Uh, it was actually a toss-up between Goat and Liar. Really, just a band at the peak of its powers. Steve Albini producing. 
uh, touch and go records peak. I, I just, I can't get enough of the Jesus lizard. That is when I am pissed, when I want revenge on the world, that's the first disc I go to. Very nice. Very nice. My number five, I'm going to go with Beck Odele. Okay. That's a, that's a good one. Beck the 90s were interesting because it, it was kind of the beginning of everything starting to kind of blend, not blend together, but take notes from each other, right? Like country kind of went pop. There's the rap rock movement at the end. And, and Beck was this weird thing in the middle of all of it that would like use anything. Like, I mean, you know, Devil's Haircut has a bullwhip, or was it New Pollution? Whatever which one it is. I mean, like bullwhips are featured in in on Beck's Odele, and none of the lyrics made sense, and like nothing worked together, but it all worked together. And I just remember listening to that CD until it was worn out, and then rebuying it. It was that good. Well, and it can't be overstated how bold and refreshing that album sounded when it came out. The Dust Brothers production just these sounds were innovative and they, they were arresting. And like you said, it, they grabbed these disparate elements, threw them together uh, on the same track and they just sounded cool and exciting. And it still does. I mean, to, to modern late 2020, early 2021 years, they still sound innovative and groundbreaking. Beck is one of those artists that still to this day, like any band that any new band that comes out that, your first thought is that sounds like Beck, that band gets disqualified, right? Like, because you can't do Beck better than he can. For sure. And that's just one of those sounds, like if anybody comes out with a record and I go, oh, that sounds like Beck, I'm instantly turned off where it's like, don't, don't do that. Like, don't be that person. Yeah, he, he is his own category. <laughs> right? Totally. All right, are we on number five? You're on number five, yes. All right, let's go back to Britpop. Let's go to my fifth favorite album of the 90s. It's Park Life by Blur. Yes. This is the third album from Blur. I, I think this, hands down, is one of the defining Britpop albums of the 1990s. It's a very British-sounding album. Forget the fact that it's just Britpop. This sounds like something that came straight out of Britain, because it did. Um, Girls and Boys obviously got all the attention, a song that lead singer Damon Albarn wrote about going on a trip to Spain with Justine Frischman of Elastica, another band whose debut album I considered for the top 10. Um, Talking about hedonism, just all the rampant sex in Spain. That got a lot of attention, got a shitload of airplay. Uh, but as you move up and down this album, the title track of Park Life, Phil Daniels, who played the lead in the movie Quadrophenia, does the lead vocals on that. And it just, it is so ragingly British and so affecting. And then just, they move all over sonically and emotionally. There's, there's punk spirit on it. There's a song called Bank Holiday, which is super amped up. They have that wonderful British cynicism about America, a song called Magic America. And there's just this show-stopping moment on the album, which still brings me to my knees every time. This is a low. It's just this gorgeous, majestic song. I, I think this is a stunning album. I could not agree with you more. It's like a, I feel like in the Oasis versus Blur battle, that was a thing, which is so silly. Blur was like the musician's choice like blur oasis was kind of straight up just rock and roll it was very easy to kind of go like yeah um and that's to take nothing away from them they're on my list Agreed. i mean you know 
take any record, any song off that album. They're all fantastic. Blur had nuance where Oasis was just kind of like, we're going to make these big, huge rec- arena rock songs and then hit you with a ballad. And it's all very straightforward, but it's really, really good. Blur had kind of layers to them. Uh, I, I think the difference between the two bands truly is the lyrics. Yeah. I, I think there, there's a legit edge to what Damon Albarn was writing as opposed to what Noel was writing in Oasis. I met Damon Albarn once the last time Gorillaz were on tour and uh, probably one of the top five people I was most nervous to, to interact with just because uh, to me, he's like, a, he's a genius, genius, you know, Agreed. like not just like an awesome rock guy. You're just like, and you are on, like, I don't think your brain works the way my brain works. And I, I just want to not be an idiot in front of you. And he was like, super cool. And within 35 seconds, it was like, we're just two guys chopping it up backstage. You know what I mean? I it was it. really cool. I love it. But I was terrified. Like, I was legit. Um, uh, even my girlfriend commented on it because, you know, this is kind of our life. Thank God. It's the coolest gig in the world that we get to do this kind of on a, in normal times on a fairly consistent basis. And even she was looking at me like, are you nervous right now? And I'm like, I am. <laughs> That's adorable. Thank you. Um, number four, speaking of bands that I would not know how to act in front of, um, my number four album of the 90s, again, I'm going to stray a little bit from alternative, but I'm going Outcast Aquemina. I had a feeling. I, I almost mentioned that when you were talking about Dre. Yeah. I almost said, oh, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Outcast. Then I thought, oh, I bet he's going to mention Outcast. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. There it Thank is. Thank you for keeping your mouth shut. Here's the window. Uh-huh. Here's the opportunity. So I always felt that Outcast was like the closest thing to alternative hip hop you could find. Like West Coast had the beats, East Coast had the flows, and Outcast somehow had them both. They're the, I mean, they're the godfathers of Dirty South and that whole movement. And like they didn't rap about the typical things that people rapped about in the 90s, you know gangs and guns and drugs and bling they kind of rapped about like socionomical issues or like being aliens like there's literally a song on the album that there's an entire verse dedicated to how we don't sound probably like how you want us to you know like they could tongue in cheek themselves and make a banger out of it um for me this album this or at aliens it's impossible for me to choose between them all but outcast to me is like I I feel like they're like the Radiohead of rap music. They're so interesting and so different. And I always love bands that um, have an aversion to, I don't know how to explain this, like an aversion to like easy money, Mm -hmm. you know, like just make a easy pop song. I, I appreciate bands that kind of try different and interesting things, I guess, so to speak. Like they stray from the pop blueprint of how to make a, a popular song, right? And Although, let's of, be honest, Rosa Parks, as pop songs go, is about as perfect as it gets. The first one hundred percent, but that's what makes it perfect, right? Where it's like they when they when they come back to center, it's like, oh my god, if they wanted to, they could be, you know, Nelly or whatever, some stupid sure. crappy rapper that sold a billion records. But instead, they still sell a billion records, and they kind of do it kind of by taking the long road. And I, I really appreciate that. My number four, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, I'm sure there's a pop punk album that speaks to me more than others in the 1990s. 
And it really didn't take me long to narrow it down. For me, it's Destination Failure, the third album from Chicago's Smoking Popes. Came out in 1997 after the band had really crushed the relationship or vice versa with Capitol Records. This was kind of like a last gasp at major label success. And it is a gorgeous record. Um, in the interest of, interest of full disclosure, I did write the liner notes for the reissue of the album, but it's because I love the album so much. Um, on the album, they upgraded a couple of their older songs, Let's Hear It For Love uh, and Can't Find It. It's just, it's a perfect pop punk record. And it, it, it strays a little bit from pop punk. There's a song with a country bounce to it called Megan. Uh, stunningly, they covered the song Pure Imagination, the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory song that Gene Wilder did. It is a wonderful cover. And just to tie in the greater pop punk world, there's a song in there they still play today, which I love, called You Spoke to Me, which is about touring with Jawbreaker and seeing the impact Jawbreaker had on their fans. I just, I think this album holds up. It never got the shot it deserved. And it is really a, a perfect pop punk record. I love it. I need to spend more time with the Smoking Popes. That's for sure. Agreed. Um, my number three, keeping it in the, uh, in the area as number three is my smashing pumpkins, Siamese dream. Uh, you know, in an era when every band was from Seattle that you saw on TV or heard on the radio, uh, we, we had smashing pumpkins and they were kind of, they were our band. They were our Pearl Jam and our Nirvana here in the Midwest. And it's like, I'm not just trying to be a homer here, but like cherub rock is one of the best first songs like what an introduction to a band and now i know there's gish before this <laughs> we'll get to that but like that album starts off immediately with like that little drum roll and you're like you know it's like that little ear perks up mm-hmm. and then that riff comes in and you're like okay and then the fucking fuzz hits and you're like oh i want more i want to know what's going to happen next and well, you're there from the whole from the from the first drum to the very last note of that record I mean, Rocket, Today, Mayonnaise, every song off that record is, is wonderful. And for as much as I love Gish, Siamese Dream to me is the fully formed, polished version of Gish. And let's be clear, the Pumpkins can really open an album because as you mentioned Gish, that opens with I Am One, which again, the drums grab your ears right out of the gate. And what a powerful song. I, I don't think we could possibly explain just how important Siamese Dream was to Chicago music, alternative music. For context, I mean, you mentioned Seattle. Around the time of Siamese Dream, Billboard magazine published an article, uh, and they declared Chicago as the cutting edge's new capital. This was, uh, Billboard magazine used to matter a lot more. The music industry used to pay a lot more attention to it. And as Seattle had kind of tapped out, and as the record industry had found all the bands it was going to find in Seattle. They had to move on parasitically to find another city to drain the life force from. But Chicago was it. Chicago was the cutting edge's new capital. And that movement, that, that groundswell of attention was really centered around the pumpkins, was really focused around Siamese Dream. Actually, three releases, more specifically that, uh, Exile and Guyville from Liz Fair and Saturation from Urge Overkill. Uh, but Siamese Dream was so important in bringing attention to Chicago. I think the attention and just the, the artistic quality of it helped elevate the city's music scene. It gave a lot of other bands a chance to be looked at at the very least. It just, it, it was a seismic release for Chicago and artistically, like you said, it, it, it is this fully formed version 
of Smashing Pumpkins. It's just so good. Like, and, and I wonder, I just wonder where that album ranks in a, in a world where Billy kind of stays out of his own way. You know, like he, he had a stretch there where he kind of tried to burn the whole thing to the ground, whether he wants to admit it or not. Right. And you just kind of, I always look back on that because it always, like if you talk to somebody outside of the Midwest and you bring up smashing pumpkins, they kind of go like, yeah, but, and I feel like, because like they, the smashing pumpkins kind of come with baggage sort of. Right. And I just wonder like how different, that album would be received if it just could stand on its own. You bring up a good point. The longer you stay active, the greater chance you have of blurring your achievements. And I yeah, think they, they kind of did. But yeah. And, and you just look at it and you go like, what a run of records, Gish, uh, Siamese dream. And then, you know, their opus melancholy infinite sadness and it's like find me a better i mean here's another topic for another podcast everybody does this but like best three album run ever right oh we should do that we should totally do that i have to really think about that one i always i always get in that conversation and then i name say something stupid and then people make fun of me so i'm gonna i'm into that but i'm gonna have to do some serious (laughs) researching before we get there We will do that. And it's worth mentioning the Smashing Pumpkins. We, on this podcast, the History of Alternative podcast, separately talked to Billy Corgan and Jimmy Chamberlain and James Eha of Smashing Pumpkins and talked a lot about Smashing Pumpkins history. So after this, if you want to dig into those episodes, uh, we really enjoy talking to everybody from the Pumpkins. Shameless, shameless self-promotion. And I respect it. Thank you. Um, And also, it is actually worth listening to because you can, I was really impressed with like, it seems like Billy's in a really good place with, with his legacy now. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's really healthy for the music too. Like I'm excited for what they have coming up as well. My number three is from Afghan Wigs. It's an album called Gentlemen. This is their first major label album. They were a, a sub pop band before this one came out. Uh, I, I can never get this line out of my head. It's the opening line of a song called Be Sweet and Gentlemen. Ladies, let me tell you about myself. I got a dick for a brain. And that really sets the tone. In fact, this is a very, as we talk about albums as one complete art form, Gentleman is a very complete album. It, it, there are threads that pull it through. Uh, if you listen to the very beginning of the album, there's a song called If I Were Going, which uses lyrics that are also repurposed in the song Debonair, which is just this explosive moment on the album. Greg Dooley is is the heart and soul of Afghan wigs. He wrote this album on the road. He wrote it after a horrible breakup. He recorded it during a massive drug binge. He was a heavy Coke user at the point. And the result is a really dark album. It is a really raw sounding album and it never quite pushed past uh, its, its major label peers. It's sub pop heritage peers. I think because it was just dark enough, just lyrically left of center that it never could quite play in the same sandboxes as the bigger boys, but man, this album gentlemen is just such a fully realized piece of work. And Greg Dooley, I think is one of the most unheralded songwriters of the 1990s. 
I am uh, admittedly, I don't know much about the Afghan wigs. So give me, give me the elevator pitch of their sound. It varies from album to album. It certainly is as time marched on. The, give me this one then, just, just for this one. This is dark, jangly, affected indie rock and roll. I dig it. I'm going to have to check uh-huh. that out. Um, my number two, I- I'm sure you've heard of this album before. Um, it is, quite honestly, the reason that we both have jobs doing what we do. Uh, it would be Nirvana's Nevermind. Okay. I mean, I just listened to this before this podcast for the first time in a very long time because, I mean, we've been living with it for so long and it's been in our ears forever. But I just sat down with the entire album. I'm just going to read off the track listing to you. Just just (laughs) listen to this. Listen to this. Smells Like Teen Spirit, In Bloom, Come As You Are, Breed, Lithium, Polly, Territorial Pissings, the greatest Nirvana song ever, Drain You, Lounge Act, Stay Away, On a Plane, Something in the Way, Endless Nameless. Wow. <laughs> like, the, everything on there is ridiculous. So you still listen to the album, I guess is my question. I, I, I can't argue any of the songs and, and the importance of the album. This is an album I don't think I can listen to anymore. You can. I fell back in love with it today. Because I, I mean, I haven't listened to that album and I, I haven't had to. Six of those records are on terrestrial radio since the day they came out. Right. Listen to it as a, a you know, here's a, a lost art anyway, but like listen to it as a whole work of, of art. It is like, whoa, <laughs> it is wild, man. One of my favorite songs on that album never really got to that in bloom teen spirit level. I love On a Plane. It's yeah, bu- it's buried on the back of the album. I've always loved that one. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to them, like even the songs that didn't make, like I mean, Territorial Pissings, Stay Away, Something in the Way, yeah, those are never going to make a radio station. But yeah, man, you could argue for Breed, you could argue for Drain You on a Plane, like those would all have made the radio if every song before it wasn't the biggest song of the year, <laughs> right? I mean, exactly. Like, I mean, in, in radio terms, there, that's like, there's four power records on there. All right, my number two, this is an album that, to my estimation, bridges the gap between 80s alternative music and 90s alternative music. It's Copper Blue by Sugar. And for context, after Husker Du, Bob Mould went solo. First solo album came out in 89 called Workbook. It was a very quiet introspective album it still holds up a great album and then after that he put out a solo album called black sheets of rain much louder a little more hit or miss but then in 1992 he came out with this brand new band at the time called sugar and the album copper blue 10 songs that's all you need uh, and they still they still hold up if i can't change your mind obvious single changes that opening guitar of helpless it's an album where the album tracks are as good or better than the songs you heard on the radio. Hoover Dam, Fortune Teller, a good idea. Bob Mould, angry, melodic, and, and really just in top form on this album. I think Copper Blue holds up, and it, it did kind of get washed out as grunge took over, but it, it is as good or better than a lot of the big releases of that decade. Let me ask you a question. So, um, 
clearly like your alternative tastes are right on the bridge of pre-grunge, right? Like kind of right in that era. So when grunge happened and God, you know, it's so funny. It's like, it feels almost like a swear word now, right? Like grunge happened, right? Um, because we all know that it's bigger than just smells like teen spirit. But anyways, when that whole thing happened and the movement took over and that's what everything was, um, did you like that? Or was that kind of like that moment you're like, well, you know, it's, it's like the moment when uh, Imagine Dragons and 21 Pilots happens now and the Incubus fans of the world are like, this sucks, man. Why don't you guys keep playing Incubus, right? Did you have that? Like, was that, did you kind of fall into that with when no. all of this? No, I, I keep in mind, I listen to everything. And I, I think what we're coming dangerously close to is the question of what is alternative, which we don't have the time or podcast bandwidth to get into right now. I, I liked, I loved Alice in Chains. I actually, I think that's a band that has sounded better with age and continues to sound better than they did when they first came out. I, I like Soundgarden. I like Nirvana a lot. Did I think that a lot of these bands were quote unquote alternative? No. When I first heard Pearl Jam 10, I thought there's nothing alternative about this. This is a mainstream rock band. That my opinion changed over time, but you know, coming from, you're right. Coming from, a world where my understanding of alternative was Joy Division, Husker Du, The Smiths, Pearl Jam couldn't have sounded farther from what I understood that to be. And that's not to say I didn't like these bands. I just didn't think of them in the same context. Nirvana right. was cool and dirty and, and dark, and I got that. But a band like Soundgarden, this, this was just a big rock band. There, there's nothing I like... I struggled. Go ahead. I, I struggled and I want to, I want to get to this after we finish the list, but like, I really struggled uh, not putting them into my top 10. That was really hard. Pearl Jam? No, come on. You know, they're going to be my number one. Um, Soundgarden. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, Super Unknown is really, really, really great. Mm -hmm. And to not include that was was that was a challenge and i, I want to ask you about omissions uh after we get through our number ones and since you totally totally spoiled my uh uh my, my number one pick of course of course if you have listened to me on the radio at all ever or followed me on social media you know uh it's the worst kept secret of this entire podcast my number one album is emphatically without question 10 um in the early 90s i was right at that age where I was starting to figure out who I was, right? Like puberty and all that stuff was happening. And I was finding my own music and I did not start well. Like I was into, uh, you know, third bass and DJ Jazzy <laughs> Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Like I listened to really bad rap music for a while. Um, and then one of my friends, shout outs to Mike Mikauka. He made me a Led Zeppelin mixtape from his dad's vinyl collection. And remember mixtapes, James? Remember how great they were? I, I could go deep on this because I just bought myself a cassette deck for the first time in years, and I'm tempted to start making them again. I love that. I love that. So remember, sometimes you'd finish your playlist, and there would be like 15 minutes of blank tape at the end. And that's like prime inventory. You're not just going to let that hit static for 15 minutes. So you'd kind of throw whatever you wanted to at the end of the tape being like, Oh, by the way, here are your bonus tracks. Right? So at the end of this Led Zeppelin mixtape that I got, the bonus tracks were this band out of Seattle called Pearl Jam. Literally I was in Racine, Wisconsin 
at the Regency Mall. I was in the foyer waiting for my stupid mom to pick me up. It was raining. And Oceans, of all songs, Oceans comes on. And before that song ended, there was a seismic shift in my life. Like, I don't even know if I knew what was happening when it was happening, but I knew something was happening. Kind of like the first time you take mushrooms, right? <laughs> like, you don't know what's happening until you're like, oh, something's happening. Um, I, it had nothing to do with oceans. Song's fine or whatever. But I knew from that moment on, like, this is what I wanted to be into forever. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. And, and I'll never, like, that moment for me is just like the first, that will always be associated to me with the moment I became me. That was like your bar, that was your bar mitzvah. Yeah, totally. That was, that was when you became a man. <laughs> One little uh, chest hair, pew, <laughs> like, hey. <laughs> All right, so 10 is your favorite album, and I get that, and especially when you put it in the context of where, where it fell in your life. Is it their best album of the 90s? That is a great, that we can have a whole podcast about that too. I'm sure you're excited to. Um, if, if I was to speak critically and do that whole thing, I would say verses to me verses because verses is just the right amount of evolution and also the right amount of getting a little bit away from being as shiny and polished as say a Jeremy or a black. I think verses was kind of a, a step into the more let's get a little bit looser with it kind of thing for me obviously you can also argue uh vitalogy i think a lot of people probably go there um well i think i I think no code's better than vitalogy do you really oh i I think bugs alone kills vitalogy (laughs) you can't call that you can't call it a good album and have that song on it Dude, it's just an interlude. It's not like it was a single, bro. It's like a three-minute song. It, it takes oh, me out of the experience. No. Vitalogy came out in the days of CDs. You could skip it. You didn't have to sit there and, and live with that for three minutes. You could just press the button. Uh, bottom line, Versus is a better album. I mean, just start to finish. It yeah. is a better album. I mean, on an album where you have elderly woman at the end of the album, I, I think that says a lot about everything in between and before it. And it opens, as we talked about, Cherub Rock and um, I Am One by the Pumpkins. As album openers go, Go is yeah. about as strong an opener as you'll find. Plus, I feel like you remember the well, maybe not so much you, but like the anticipation to get that record when it came out. It was so exciting to get like new Pearl Jam, and you you know you sit there and you're like, man, I can't wait. I feel like that's lost now, and which sucks. It's so disappointing. Oh, yeah. Like that moments of, I mean, I literally remember listening at, at midnight to 101 WKQX. The, the second that album dropped, they played it in full at midnight. Yeah. And I remember sitting in my mom's car. Did we edit it? I hope we did. In hindsight, there's no way we could have. Yep, Safe Harbor, I'm sure we let it rip. Say, uh, listen, in 94, I, I, bet it, I bet it just happened. Plus, in that era, like it was just that was the time to do it. Like I could see it probably just happening. And not to steer you so far away from 10, but going back to verses, talking about that anticipation. This doesn't happen now. You're right. When Versus came out, it debuted selling close to a million records in its first week. 950,000. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine any album doing that over the course of like five years at this point? They did yeah. it in a week. Yeah. Top oh, of the man. Billboard chart. It was so good. That, I mean, 
I go back and forth on this a lot. 10 will always be number one just because of the sentimental value of it Mm -hmm. for me. But yeah, I mean, verse, uh, take your pick, man. And you could even, again, maybe not so much with bugs, but like (laughs) I would, if someone said Vitalgy was their favorite, I wouldn't like crap on them, right? I'd be like, I mean, I guess, you know, like, and that's a great record too. My problem with Vitalgy is I'm too big of a Pearl Jam nerd. So I know like, like that album was the album that almost ended them. So like, I can never listen to it and not think about that. It's basically, that's kind of basically Eddie's record. See, for me, Versus is the one where I thought, oh, I get this. I get this yeah. band now. I remember like Versus came out and I was like, oh man, they're even more pissed off than they were on 10. This is amazing. <laughs> well, that's just it. There, there was more, more of a ferocity yeah. in the songs on Versus. And that's what I latched on to. Yeah. It, it well, just felt and- like it had teeth, teeth to it. Yeah, and and don't forget, like ten is also a, a that's a debut album. Like that mm-hmm. is, that is the first time those guys ever got together and made a record too. You know, like that's incredible. All right, uh, I'm gonna my, let you give me number one. Uh, my number one is the reason why we're doing this episode. On social media, about two weeks ago, I posted something about the fact that I just got the demo versions of the album "To Bring You My Love" by PJ Harvey on vinyl, and I was listening to it. I didn't hear anything revelatory. I didn't get any new insight into the album listening to the demos, but I did mention that it was hands down one of my favorite albums of the 90s, which led John Manley to chime in and in the comments saying, oh, this sounds like a podcast episode or something along those lines. And sure enough, it really, I I gave this a lot of thought since we decided we were going to do this. I think this is absolutely my favorite album of the 90s. It's PJ Harvey's first proper solo album. uh, And it just has this, smoldering intensity as it goes track by track it's it's a slow burn of an album Uh, it's an emotional release it's cathartic i'm sure for her it's cathartic to listen to and just the way that the title track opens and winds its way in and around you then punches right into the song called meets the monster which absolutely crushes your skull it just start to finish this album is perfect and as we talk about album sequencing and you know the, the peppering of good songs throughout an album, and two of the best songs on the album, the single Down by the Water, long, the very bluesy Long Snake Moan, those run what I guess would traditionally be side two. I, this is a, a flawless alternative album. This is a masterwork from Polly Jean Harvey, and, and I think it stands as absolutely one of the best of that decade. She was so cool, and that whole record is so cool, especially within the context of when it was happening, right? Because everything was so aggro during that time and just really it was kind of getting close to that place where everyone was just trying to be louder than the band before them, which I mean, all for it. Love it. And then she kind of came in and it wasn't like this, like so far out in the world where you're like, Whoa, what is this crazy curveball? It's like, she slid in. Right. And you're just like, dude, this is so cool. Like PJ Harvey is cool. Oh, she was always cool. I mean, the first two albums, Dry and Rid of Me, got a fair amount of attention, you know, college airplay or whatever. Sure. Uh, the, the cool kids knew who she was, but this album just kicked the door down. Like she, All that groundwork paid off. And I think she, she took a monster leap forward artistically on this album. It's cinematic. It, it's, it's just this, I think working with Flood and John Parrish, as opposed to Steve Albini, pushed her music forward and her sound forward. It, it's just, it's awesome. So I had a really, really great time uh, building this list and 
arguing with my friends and debating with you and, and shout outs to everyone who uh, joined the conversation on Facebook the other night over on our station's Facebook page. And we'll definitely get more into that once we release this podcast for sure. We'll, <laughs> sure. we'll definitely, we'll definitely jump into the comments and discuss uh, your top tens as well. But again, um, these are our favorites. Just our favorites, not the best. You, although you, they're pretty great. <laughs> you, you can't disagree with them because there are right. opinions. Like this is just the stuff that speaks to me and speaks to you. You may like different stuff. I, I would hope so, but it's just what we like. Um, when I was making this list, I thought it'd be really easy. And I thought, then it got incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, what records were the hardest to leave off your list? Like an honorable, honorable mention category. Who do you have sure. in there? Uh, I, I flirted with Rage Against the Machine for a while. And I went back yeah. and forth between Evil Empire and Battle of Los Angeles. And I couldn't pick one between the two. And then I just got angry and I said, okay, I'm not going to do Rage. I just, I'm done. I'm moving on. Um, a couple of Chicago bands too. I, I really, I still listen to an album by Red Red Meat called Bunny Gets Paid. Came out in the mid 90s. It's a fantastic record. Um, the Pixies, I'm surprised you didn't mention the Pixies in your top 10 list. Trump Lamond was a stunning album in the early 1990s. I got too meta with the Pixies, and I said, if I was going to do a Pixies record, it's Doolittle, and that was 1989. Although, you know what I should have done? Teenager of the Year. Frank Black. I can listen I to Headache. That record is so good. I can listen to Headache any day of the week. Oh, my God. And as we talk about the stuff left on the table, I really, oh, I'm really made, mad. I'm really mad at myself right now. Sorry. <laughs> I, I really made a point of not putting on albums that I was supposed to have that people would say you have to have that because that's not the idea. I, I wasn't, yeah. we, we talked about this at the beginning of the episode. I'm not looking to impress anybody. If I haven't impressed you yet, this, this episode is not going to change your mind. Um, I, I, I didn't want to say, well, I love slint or I think, I don't know, insert a band here. I like dust by screaming hum. trees. Yeah, hum. <laughs> it just, it, what was left on the table for you? Um, Rage Against the Machine. I would have gone with the self-titled just because I remember hearing that, you know, and I always kind of equate best records to like song things that kind of like stopped me in my tracks. And I remember hearing Rage for the first time and just like, what the hell is happening? You know, like it was one of those kind of things. Um, it was, they were like the band, like I thought I was cool. Cause I listened to, you know, all of the cool grunge tunes and then that was there and you're like, Oh, I need to know about that too. Mm -hmm. You know, that was like the next layer of music where it's like, Oh, you know, I'm kind of getting the mass, the, the mainstream version of, you know, angry teenager affected youth. And then you heard that and you're like, Oh, that's the real stuff. Put that right in my veins. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I struggled not adding U2's Octoon Baby. I wrestled with that one too. I, I did. CD I ever bought. And damn, that's a great record too. Like that's another one. I, I kind of go back to that from time to time and kind of just, if I need like a, just a palate cleanse, that's another album you kind of put from front to back. Oh, for sure. I, I, yeah. The album tracks are just as strong until the end of the world on Octoon Baby, I think is one of U2's finest moments. And that was never even a single. Wild Horses is a great song off there. Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses is great oh, even, on there too. Even better than The Real Thing, Zoo Station, The Fly. I mean, Zoo it's Station, just... yeah, incredible. The Fly is uh, outrageously underrated, right? Mm -hmm. um, BC Boys Little Communication for all of the reasons. I left it off because, again, I went like, if I'm going to do a BC Boys thing, 
it either has to be licensed to Iller Paul's boutique. It just has to be. Well, and I would, um, I would argue that Hello Nasty is a better Beastie album from the, from the 90s than Ill Communication. That's tough. We, could, we should definitely do a Beastie okay. Boys podcast at some point. Fine. Um, and then one other record that I had on my list that I didn't want to put on the top 10, but I also kind of wanted to like just mention it was um, Hole, Live Through This. I wrestled with Hole too, because yeah. some of those songs are, are they're very spare sounding. They're they're dark. They're uh, Jennifer's body on that one, uh, asking for it. Violet, of course, is just a Violet, rager yeah. of the song. I, I, I think Courtney Love, as, as we talk about Billy Corgan undoing a lot of the goodwill of the Pumpkins, I think Courtney Love did a lot to undo the goodwill that Hole built with that album in particular, but. If you listen to it with fresh ears, it still sounds good. I mean, I always kind of, you know, joke where I always say like that is the third best Nirvana record because <laughs> it's, I mean, I mean, it's kind of Kurt's love letter to Courtney, right? Like right. it's kind of what it is. It's like, I'm going to write you a really, really great record. And he did, like he did that. Uh, that album is, is insane. And I, and I really think like if, if, if you're listening to this and listening to us kind of wax poetic about the grunge era, like I feel like that's a really important record for you to spend some time with if you haven't, because, you know, Kurt always kind of wrote feminine anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So to hear his lyrics sung by a woman was incredibly powerful at the time. I felt so I had a hard time. I, I don't think it's my, a, a top 10 record for me, but I think if you're going to make a nineties list, I think it deserves attention. I mean, Atlantis Morissette, Jack Little Pill probably deserves attention too. Oh. It's not my personal top no, that, 10, but that like, stop that album sucks. That, that is a terrible record. <laughs> stop. There's literally nothing good on that album. Nothing good on that album. James, I everybody. Holy crap. <laughs> Oh my God, that's amazing. Okay. Yeah, are, you, are, you, now, are, you, are you listening to Head Over Feet or Hand in My Pocket? Are, are you really? If I did, would it be ironic, James? That's a shitty song, too. It's just a terrible album. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? The History of Alternative Podcast is recorded at the 101 WKQX Studios in Chicago. Subscribe on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't do drugs. Stay in school.